and he was six We rode on horses made of sticks He wore black and I wore white He would always win the fight Bang, bang, he shot me down Bang, bang, I hit the ground Bang, bang, that awful sound Bang, bang, my baby shot me down Changed the time when I grew up, I called him mine. He would always laugh and say, Remember when we used to play? Bang, bang. I shot you down, bang, bang. You hit the ground, bang, bang. That awful sound, bang, bang. I used to shoot you down. Average men, average women. Welcome to episode number 74 of the Average Man podcast. Bang, bang. My baby shot me down. Bringing us in there, Nancy Sinatra. This week's episode is an interview with a good mate of mine um, and a hunting advocate. He's a, he's, he spearfishes, he hunts, he loves his cooking, he grows his vegetables. He's an all-round Outdoor kind of dude, Robbie Peck. Um, we have a good chat, good hour and a half long chat here, and I think there's plenty more to cover, so I dare say I'll be trying to get him back on the podcast to go over a bunch of things again. Um, yeah, and I'm not going to take too long of your time with the, with the intro here. We'll jump straight into this, um, this chat. My friend Robbie Peck, um, episode number 74 of the Average Man podcast. Here we go. Okay, we are on episode number 74 of the Average Man podcast, as yet unnamed, because I need to get a song off you, and I'm talking, if you're listening at home there, uh, to Robbie Peck, a good mate of mine, and um, he's an all-rounder, he's, he does a little bit of everything, and how you going, Robbie? Yeah, good, thanks, bro. So I will have to get a song track or, or a suggestion off you later, so I can give it a name and a, and a title track to, to bring us in. Mm. But um, killing in the name of you already stole last. I week. stole that. It was a good one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty pumped by the end of that. Was well, yeah. 
Hey, man. So, look, you've recently been to, uh, you went to Exmouth down to Yardie Creek. How, yeah, how'd you go? Um, yeah, it was sick, bro. We, um, yeah, just the family and kids and, um, you know, to a camper trailer, got a little inflatable boat we threw on the top of that. The camper trailer, you pretty much made up yourself, didn't you, that little rig? Yeah, man, just, like, yeah. picked it out. As you know, with like battery and yeah, got a water pump and a few other things just to make it a little bit more comfortable. That that trip down, oh, up to Croydon last year, there was you guys, there was a few other camper trailers around, and we had this disastrous camp set up because we're in the middle of moving from swags back into tents, back into what do we do now with two kids and everything, and it was terrible. And um, that was a big, a big uh, catalyst for us to go get the camper trailer sorted that whole weekend. Eh? I think we went and looked at one. On the way home, it was yeah. yeah, and then sort of made that made the adjustment and, and have been loving it ever since. It makes it so much easier having a setup with a little kitchen and all your bits and pieces have got a place to go and all that kind of stuff, eh? Yeah, absolutely, man. Like I mean, we used to struggle through our old setup, and I remember the catalyst for us when my mum came over from NZ, and um, I spent about three and a half hours packing because we yeah. all of a sudden we had to like you know. Our, our young fellow, Luke, he was only six weeks old at the time, first camping trip. And yeah. um, all of a sudden, camping just got way more complicated. Yeah. And throw my mum in the mix. And I was like, man, oh, I'm never doing that again. Like, the pack up and the setup on either end, it, it puts you off doing it for ages, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Knowing where, that, knowing that, especially if you pack up properly and you've got things in their little nooks and posies. And we, me and Emily haven't been talking about starting an inventory so we know what's out. When we get home and we just know, okay, we need to top up on X, Y, and Z rather than going, is there, is there clean linen in the swag? Uh, sorry, in the camper? I think there was, but neither of us can remember. So we ended up taking, you end up double packing and taking stuff again anyway when we didn't need to. So a little inventory would be another little, um, a little extra, I reckon, to get it smoother. 100%, man. Yeah, that's um what we often do on the drive home. I'm like, right, we need to write down what we yeah. were, what a bit of a reflection and, um, yeah. and assess session. Yeah, so you can kind of tweak the system before you go out next time again. Yeah. And you took the Zodiac, did you? Yeah. Down there? Yeah, yeah. What, what does that thing weigh? You, you notice the difference towing that and the drag and everything? Um, yeah, it's like it's only 70 kilos, so it weighs by Yeah, right. It's a little bit of a sail up on top of there. Obviously. You, you keep it inflated for yeah, the trip. Yeah, inflated for the trip. I yeah. mean, you can't pull it down. It's just not worth the hassle. I'd rather just pay a few bucks extra in fuel. Did, did you set it up for the first time at Croydon last year then? Because it was, wasn't it flat? You, you, did you pump it up there? Yeah, yeah. it's only because I, I picked up second hand. It's just a yeah. big surf life-saving thing, so it's yeah. got a slow leak. But ah, right. Yeah. pump it up once a day generally when I'm on, you know, in camping mode. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. And what, so that was pretty handy down there? Yeah, man. Like yeah. Yardy Creek, where we camped on the Cape Range National Park, is, yeah. you got, you know, about, I don't even know, 10 or so different sites you can camp mm-hmm. along there. And Yardy's kind of like one of the, the most southern on the sealed road anyway. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just handy. There's a marine reserve straight out in front, but just to the south of there, you can go and get squid. So we went and yeah, had right. some squid, and Lukey got his first squid. So oh, really? Was, yeah. Um, Lukey, a four-year-old. Yeah. And um and yeah, so that was awesome and Emily got one and um Emily and James, the two year old, got smoked with um squid ink. Yeah, oh really? And over the shirts and everything. <laughs> was, yeah, pretty good value. Um yeah, so I did that and then um a couple of waves there as well. So mm. it was just handy, you know, like moor it up out in front of the campsite and just yeah, swim out to wicked. the boat every day, just maybe on the go from bush and just boom. Oh there. beautiful man. Great. Yeah, 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 how nice is that? And those beaches down there are just fucking mint, aren't they? Yeah. Did you did you get any diving in when you were down there? Mm. 
Yeah, man. We um, we jumped in. Um, another mate, Max, from up here in the um, Northwest Sparing Club. Yeah. Came down. And um, so, yeah, we went out for a quick spare um, one afternoon, and it was just a nice glass off, flat day. I need to find that out about... Where where you can go and everything down there because obviously the conserve like the, the conservation areas you can't spear on and things like that. Eh? Yeah, and, and is it pretty easy to find out where those areas are down there? It is, but once you're down there, no. And um, there's both yeah, right. signage, and you actually have to have the brochure beforehand. And yeah, I feel like they could do way better at promoting the conservation zones because a lot of people wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be aware of it. And yeah, ignorance of the law is no excuse for breaking it, but. But they when it's an area like that where people, it's got awesome reef and then awesome conservation areas, a lot of people go there to fish and to spear and things like that, you could help them out and have it a little bit more readily available. Yeah, think. absolutely. Yeah, yeah you, you, they should. I think they should anyway. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like most guys at the campsite and stuff, are, you know, there's only a few responsible people around who, who have access to the maps and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I know it because I'm familiar with that area. But, yeah. Um, yeah. It's um you also got to be a few restrictions on what you can take as well. Like for example, we're not allowed to spare coral trout on the Ningaloo Reef. Yeah, right. Which is a bit funny because you're allowed to line catch them, but for some reason. And I'm sure they're not um endangered down there, but they're probably nah, like fucking still, rats on that reef, yeah, wouldn't they be? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I find there's probably more up here in Headland, but you reckon? Um, yeah, right. Yeah. But again, like I mean, apparently the Headlands only got the restriction of one trout a day because mm. Karatha got hammered during the boom time, especially. Yeah, right. And um, because Carath is in the same West Coast or was it a northern bioregion or whatever through Department of Fisheries, mm. they basically made a rule to protect Carratha that unfortunately spilled over. It develops to us areas. as well. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Bloody Carratha stitching us up again. Uh, bugger <laughs> <laughs> that. Bit, uh, bit of town war going on. Funny because I grew up in Carratha, eh? And then until uh, I was about eight, and then down to Perth and then back up to Headland. And I like actually. I prefer Headland. I like the setup. Obviously, we live on the coast. You and I on one house back. You're on the coast, and you don't have that option in in Karathi, You know what I mean? Like, cause that big mud flat between you and the yeah. and the ocean. And I just think, I mean, their town is a great little town. The way it's set up and it's exactly like an actual town. You know, you can go out walk around at night from a cafe to a pub, and there's you know a bit of stuff happening in there, which is kind of cool. But we're not really up here for that lifestyle. We're up here for the beach and the outdoors yeah. and the camping and the fishing and all that sort of stuff. So I find you know. For me, Port Hedland, far above and beyond as far as the whole setup goes. Yeah. Even though Carruthers looked at the probably the premier town up here in the Pilbara. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you, man. I mean, yeah. um, it's a bit of a shame because Hedland could have been a lot better had we not had you know so much dysfunction in the town for so long. But yeah, um, yeah. Well, they seem to be taking a hard stance on that now. Anyway, mm. with um, was it Paul Paul Reebling? Is it the the, the um. Fred, 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 just um, making up names. Yeah, Paul Reeves is another bloke who's always on Facebook. Ah, uh, okay. Hey, Paul, if you're listening. You <laughs> there you go, mate. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and just sort of making stuff happen, eh? Mm. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Even if maybe, I don't know, I don't know the, the, the nuances of the discussion. I'm not involved in that, but maybe certain things didn't need to happen or people would say they're wasting money, blah, blah, blah. There's always going to be ups and downs, but things are happening which yeah. is pretty cool yeah. and probably going in a different direction so yeah man and I mean the town you know just got their windfall with rates as well thanks to realising that they can you know charge all the mining companies rates for all the um, areas around Utah oh yeah so, yeah um, yeah bit like, extra money in the, pu- in the pocket yeah yeah and, and so there should be yeah. the amount of money moving through this town these towns is ridiculous mm, yeah man it's a bit of a funny one because um, that was one thing that was quite controversial that Fred did was um, write off I think it was 75% of the money that they 
technically owed the town mm. um, to set on a don't remember pay that. Yeah. And um, that was pretty controversial. And I'm but sure it was about were, getting them on board for the future that way. I'm sure there were reasons behind it, but maybe they could have been communicated better. I'm not sure, but I reckon if you had have asked the general ratepayers in town, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a ratepayer myself, I'm like, man, I could have done with a 75 cent discount too. Mm-hmm. But but was it a was it a uh, a battle that couldn't be won? So you kind of take take choose your battles and move forward with what with progress. Man, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. I mean, I'd like to think that he had the interest of the town at heart. So I'm telling him to pull his microphone in a little bit closer, just angle it up a little bit. I notice that I'm louder than you. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, guys. No, don't worry about it. It's me. I'm thinking about it in the back of my mind while I'm trying to talk as well. So yeah, I need to get some maps sorted out before I go down to England, know where I can have a little dive. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. I wish you could take some photos of that brochure so I just send them to you. That's Sweet. the easiest anyway. Too easy. And what's the water like this time? I think Emily said it's still pretty warm for the kids and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it was probably, man, hovering around 25 degrees or something. Um, The locals were even saying it was warm, so I think it might have been slightly warm. Unseasonally warm, yeah. Yeah, um, Were you in the wetty? Nah, man, I was just surfing in boardies and, yeah, yeah, like I had, and diving, yes, wetty, especially as you're going a bit deeper, it gets really cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, um, surfing was just yeah boardies and, and a vest in the morning just keep you chill yeah okay I haven't worn my uh, I haven't worn my wetsuit for years four, four years or something I'm going to have to I don't think I've changed I'm not the, pretty much the same shape I've always been so it should still fit we'll have to try it out this weekend before I go down there yeah man yeah because um, we're on there yeah next not this week the week after yeah I'm down there I'm pretty excited about it yeah Right. Just, to get, yeah, <laughs> just to get out of town. I'm excited just to get out of town, man. Yeah. Um, and, and so while we're on talking about uh, past trips, you've had another one recently that went a little bit south. Yeah. I've um, got to tell you, I'm jealous you went to the Monties, but um, still uh, elaborate on, on what happened when you were down there. Yeah, so it was actually a perfect cursed weekend in some respects. We're still had an awesome time. I mean, it's always a, a good trip with the boys and... and um, you know, just a beautiful part of the world. The Montes, like, we're so lucky to have it in our back door. And anyone who's listening, if never been, the, yeah, if you got the opportunity, Dave will one day. Um, yeah, like, it's, it's beautiful and um, great fishing, great diving, and just a stunning spot. And um, not known too many people being blown up, like, by three nukes back in, I think it was the 60s by the British. Um, so yeah, funny. Um, some parts of the three-eyed island. fish th- swimming around there. Yeah, <laughs> they um. Well, they reckon that there is background radiation, and or oh, sorry, not background, but residual radiation mm. in some of the um, some of the spots. They recommend you don't camp there, whatever. Um, mm. we actually borrowed a Geiger counter. Went out there once. Oh really? Just to actually test it. The first time we went there. Did you get any readings? And uh, no, nah, man. Surprisingly not. And only about a kilometre from the um Side. one of the blast sites. Yeah, right. Um, like the centre point of the blast site. Obviously, that place would have been nuked to buggery when it yeah. happened. And they yeah. tested all these at the surface too. So, um, I was I was surprised, man. Maybe if you kicked up some soil or something, there mm. might be some. You know, yeah, because how much sand moves over the top of those areas exactly, like yeah. daily. But even then, I mean, like I was kind of surprised because my impression from school and everything like that is that you'd think it hangs around for centuries and centuries but but like on that though i mean obviously there's there's rock and hard ground there as well but a lot of movable soil and then with the i assume they're still subject to the large tides that we, we get up here they, that moves yeah, through man. there and cyclones and things like that yeah but i mean the places where we're camping a little bit up, maybe not yeah storm surge for sure mm. but i mean just in general as, as in moving away radiation from an area like that surely it gets a good washout. You know, every yeah, year. Yeah. 
so for the last 60 years mm, exactly so. yeah um yeah. but yeah stunning spot regardless and um you know like we some of the spots we dive and get crayfish there's actually big chunks of metal which um I suspect actually comes from the um, one of the bombs they put it in an old frigate and they it's just floating in the water. They just detonated the thing. Yeah, right. And um, apparently the engine block can be found on the island. There's a couple of other big chunks of metal where we go diving, getting craze. Yeah. And I'm like, this is probably from the nuke ship. So what what sort of depths are you diving in generally around there? The island there. Around there is generally pretty shallow. Like inside the island, it's sort of sub eight, ten meters. Mm-hmm. Um, but then. It's my kind of diving. Yeah, and it's stunning. <laughs> Beautiful. Too, man. It is just amazing. Like, you know, there's spots where it's like every single coral bomb, coral trout, coral trout. Do you, do you dive over, with a GoPro or something when you're yeah, de- when you're over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, there's still a few like friendly sharks on the inside. Friendly. Yeah. Intr- like, uh, you mean like they're very interested? In what's yeah, going man. On? Yeah, yeah. Like they're um, there's obviously people who aren't familiar with diving with sharks like we are living up here in headland and they're and, curious hey and um yeah i think some people just see one freak out and give the shark the fish so the sharks now got learned behavior yeah and um so they become a little bit more aggressive but they'd hear a lot of those signals going off too like a fish getting shot and then yeah, the, exactly. the signal that they send yeah. out in the water and all that and you can hear the noise like when you're anywhere in the water you can hear when someone shoots a fish that and you're like, oh, yeah. one of the boys is on yeah. <laughs> everyone gets excited that used to ruin like the first hour of my diving trip mostly out and when i'd go deep water with some of the boys like that blue water diving not really for me to be honest i like i like diving on the reef but i'd jump in in the first hour i'd be thinking about just sharks and shit and then i'd be like what am i doing here i'm, I'm in the water i'm here to hunt I'm here to find fish i'm already in the water calm my heart rate down get on task and then you know you get into it and have a good day yeah but mm. yeah they, they can be quite curious can't they yeah man like on the outside there's a joint trial rocks north of the Montes is about probably 15, 20 k's north. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the spots we go to, primarily for Spanish Mackies. Yep. Um, and there's some extremely friendly sharks out there. Like what, tigers, um, bullies? I saw a big tiger once actually coming up. It's about 16, 17 metres. We normally dive around there. Mm-hmm. And we come up from the bottom, didn't even realise, but um, you see on my GoPro footage, I turn around, this huge tiger, it must have been like four metres or something, was oh, yeah. actually following me up. Yeah, right. And um, that was okay. I think it was just checking me out. It was yeah. quite big. I don't know if it had a feed. It might have been pregnant, but yeah, right. that was the biggest shark like I've quite seen. Fat like quite well. fat and it was like totally, like, I mean, tigers are known to attack in that stealth mode. They come up from underneath. Yeah, and, man. Yeah, so um, they great whites. On the back of my mask, I rolled the shark eyes, like the band that's got the eyes on the back. Oh, yeah. And also even on my fins as well, because yeah. um, the theory being that a predator knows that you've spotted them. Yeah. And so essentially it's eyes on the back of your head. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm a big believer in that. Like, when you make eye contact... Well, there's fish shark, that have that kind of shit on them. Yeah, exactly. But obviously, yeah. they've evolved yeah. like that over millions of years, so yeah. it's obviously something that works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but um, that was that was freaky. Same same day, we, had, um, we moved to a different spot a couple hundred metres away, and... I hadn't even shot a fish. Normally sharks will only start getting aggressive once you've shot something. And, and even then, they take a while to ramp up. And, mm. and often you'll... If you're in one area, clean yeah, it up. And you might have shot a fish. fish and they'll chase the fish up and you can yeah. rip it away. And then then once you've got the fish on your body, they'll mm. back off generally. Because now um, you're part of a bigger target. Yeah, exactly. And um, and they know that you're still a bit of a threat. Yeah. Um, all a bit of a game because they can still take a big chunk out of you if they wanted to. But yeah. they think you're a threat. But um, this one time at that spot, 
just jump off the boat and we were probably getting a little bit casual where we'd split up a bit. I was about 100 metres from the other boys. Mm. And then I had two bronzies and one bull shark just start going me. And um, well, What do you mean by going like, you? As in like coming up from below, like, you know, the vis was amazing. Mm. You could see the bottom 16 metres. Oh, beautiful. And they were down the bottom and they just swim vertically up at me and, um, and then just dart away. And I'm like lunging my spirit and I'm like... Do you, do you run smokies or anything? Um, nah, man, but um, I know some of the other guys do. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, controversial item and, and in fact, um, in fact, illegal. So, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the day, look after yourself. Though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, these sharks in particular, mate, like like I said about the learned behaviour before, mm. um, I think they've been, there's a few, char- there's a charter that goes there and I suspect they just get used to taking fish off them. But yeah, man, these things were getting closer and closer and I was like, man, if I, I was lunging at them with a spear, like, you know, just to warn them back off mm. and you kind of, you can bark at them a bit like a dog underwater. Like, yeah. rrr, rrr. And um, despite that, they were still getting more and more aggressive. And is the heart like, going? Closer and closer. Yeah, man, it was like, man, this is intense. So I was like, boat, boat, boat. Come over as soon as the boat came over, they backed off. Yeah, but um, and because you, you, you spread out a little bit, just because sometimes it happens when you're a bit excited, yeah, there's good yeah. hunting things like that. Exactly. Mate, that's I can I can relate to that in a couple of different ways. And the, the first way I will just say, yeah, well, I had a couple of little bull sharks. Once I'd shot fit, shot at a fish, missed him, so I was a, sort of my, my gun was unloaded and I reeled it back in, and these two bullies started coming towards me, and same sort of thing. Me and a mate were diving. We always sort of dive as buddies, but we just sort of you know, there's tides they drift you quite quickly. We both drift into different sort of areas on the reef, and then and I started, I popped my head up. I was at the surface. I popped my head up and saw the boat was about thirty meters away. I thought, oh fuck, and they were they were just they weren't coming at me like that. They were menacing me though. I was swimming backwards, like on my back, look at, looking at them and holding my gun and the spear in, in the one hand, but the spear wasn't loaded in. And they were just sort of crossing over each other about about half a metre from the end of my fins the whole way back, sort of just, just harassing me, you know, the whole way back. I'm just like, get away from me, man. The heart sort of started going. And they, were only, they weren't that big. They were probably a metre to a metre and a half, which is big enough. But I, I always liken it to, say, like, a, like dogs, right? I've been in. I'm, I'm a dog person. Love dogs. Always been around dogs. Good with dogs. I was working at a house once. We were down in Perth, and we spoke. To, the owner wasn't home. We spoke to him. He had two stat two like like American pit bulls there, and they looked nice. They were quite friendly at the gate. And I spoke to this bloke. Said, "Hey mate, we need to do some work in your backyard. The dog, you know, you're not home. The dogs cool. Yeah, the dogs are great, mate. They're fine. No worries. Go out the back there. They'll be they'll be fine. All right. Okay. No worries. Went out the back, and they were pretty fine." when we were working around near the house, then his backyard was one of those backyards that's just all sand and dog toys and holes and dog shit. So like that was the dog's domain, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. he didn't do anything in his backyard. That was where they hung and that's where they run amok. And we had to get power from the next, next door neighbor's house. So I was walking across his backyard to go throw the lead over the fence. And as I was on the way to the back fence, they were starting to get a little bit playful, jumpy and a bit excited. And by the time I'd thrown the, the lead over the fence, I was walking back towards the house, they were starting to get quite aggressive, jumping up, Jumping onto me, like hit me with their paws. One nipped me on the cheek. One nipped me on the elbow, and they were start. And I was, my heart started going as well because I'm in this backyard, sort of on my own. My mate was working there, but he was out the front of the trailer. And they started to get that excited. I could tell, and they're, and they're yapping and nipping and jumping up my face. And I was like, started freaking out a little bit. Called out to my mate. He ran in and yelled at him. We sort of ended up 
getting out of the yard. We couldn't go back in. Once they got excited, we couldn't get our tools out, couldn't get our lead out. They were like out the gate sort of frothing for it, you know? Yeah. And I think of sharks in a little bit of a way like that, in the same sort of manner as they don't have to be that big to, to it's like a couple of pit bulls coming after you. It's not that they're going to eat you, take you away and never be seen again, but you don't need to get bitten by one on your leg when you're in the water, especially if you're under there holding your breath, for it to become a bit of a, an issue, you know. Oh, so you're in their domain 100% and, yeah, yeah I kind of sometimes I, I see that, a bit of a similarity between the two mm-hmm. situations. Absolutely, so. man. Like that, there's a perfect analogy, dogs. They are the dogs of the sea. Yeah. You they know, don't like, have to, to, to be big enough to kill you. They mm-hmm. can do some damage yeah. and, and, you know, imagine getting a, an artery bitten and bleeding out. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I mean, like, in most of the time, you can, you know, a big dog has the ability to do some serious damage to you. Yeah. But most of the time, you can coexist quite happily. You know? That's Go right. Place, place, hang out. Yeah. And that's like us. I mean, out here off Headland, man, we go up to the 50-meter mark, and, you know, that's where we do most of our fishing, mm-hmm. bottom fishing, and then we'll take the spearing gear out and jump in some blue water. Mm-hmm. Um, I've jumped in there and had 50 sharks around me, man. Wow. Like, there are no, there's no shortage of sharks in yeah. West Australia, man. Like, in fact, some of the guys, the commercial guys who've been in the game 30, 40 years, reckon the shark numbers have never been higher. Yeah, right. Might be a different story around other parts of the world, but mm-hmm. West Australia in particular, man, is just a healthy fishery. And, yeah. Um, you know, like... We but, coexist with them quite happily. Yeah, and, and amongst these sharks, there's big Mackie swimming around. And yeah. So when you shoot a shark, a fish in amongst 50 sharks or whatever, yeah. I generally try and you sort of get waves of them. I'll generally yeah. try and wait until there are fewer sharks around and then yeah. try and go for that stone shot and just rip that fish up as quick as you can. And generally speaking, you don't hear a lot in the, in the statistic-wise. I mean, a lot of attacks on divers do you. It's quite often surfers and swimmers and people who hang out on the surface and shit and more of a yeah. shadow and not down in their world. Isn't yeah. that, would that be correct? Yeah. 100%. Man. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, as a surfer, I feel far more vulnerable. Floating on the top. Yeah, you Absolutely. don't even know what's underneath you. Quite often you're in sandy water because it's where the breakers are and shit like that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's a different kettle of fish. But down south as a diver, mm-hmm. I still feel pretty vulnerable down there going for crabs and abs. Well, you know, there's white pointers. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is just a scary, scary creature, isn't yeah, it? Man. That's a monster. Oh, dude, they're beasts. <laughs> I mean, very impressive beasts, but mm. they are still just, they're still wild animal and mm. You know, you might see the odd photo of someone, you know, diving with a great white. It's like, that's awesome, but time and a place. Time know, and a place, and you've got to know that. Oh, yeah, a lot about them. Like, I don't know if you know Julie Shark Angel. She's a chick. I think she's a South African chick. She's on an Instagram um, bird, and she dives with sharks flat out, great whites to, to hammerheads to reef sharks, everything. And she'll dive down to schools and things like that. But she's started them her whole life, been around them her whole life. She understands their behaviours and when they're in certain, obviously there's certain places, certain times, all that kind of thing where, where they're not, as, they're not, they don't have a personal vendetta. They just want to kill people. If they're hungry and they're big enough, yeah. then you become food, you know. Yeah, I think it's the same with, yeah. say, crocodiles and things like that. Look at Steve Irwin. We sort of deal with him, dealt with him his whole life. He knows a bit about him. But we're going off a little bit off to- topic here, man, yeah. which is, Fine, but I do want to get to the drama of the Monty's the Monty's trick. Yes, true, true. Yeah, so <laughs> that's a good segue, wasn't, wasn't it? it? Yeah, um, yeah. So Monty's boost over there, um, brother-in-law Clive. Um, he just moved up um, a few months back, and um, yeah, he was off work. Um, the weather window looked perfect. Um, you know, the forecast was looking absolutely cracking. The tides are small. Mm-hmm. All the boxes ticked. So we're like, yes, we're going to do it. Um, another mate, G, French mate of mine, um, he wanted to jump in too. So mm-hmm. 
three of us boosted over on like the you know Thursday a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know the forecasts have been consistent for the three days leading leading up to it. I didn't even bother checking the forecast on the morning we left, mm. and um, we'd planned to um, to launch from Dampier, boost over there. Did that jump, put the boat in the water, start heading over. Wind's blowing its tits off. Yeah. Um, I was like, man, this isn't on the forecast. Like really strong easterly. I checked the updated forecast before we lost reception. Like, bugger, like it was only going to be a quick overnight trip, man. Like just, you know, the idea was we'd get there around lunchtime, spear all afternoon, go for a fish in the morning, you know, a bit more spearing in the morning, and, and then boost, and boost back. Like, yeah. you know, you can do those strike missions, and mm. that was the plan, just try and maximise the time with the fam. And, um, you know, anyway, um, yeah, we decided, geez, this wind's actually going to be easterly. Uh, the next day, quite strong, which means, um, you know, we would have had a headwind for 130-odd k's back from the Montes. Yeah. And it didn't really appeal to us, so we actually turned around, put the boat back on the trailer, drove back down, down the road, down off this coast, sort of, um, to Fortescue and launched there. Um, turns Just out so you're coming at the wind at a different angle. Yeah, like, and it's, it's a little bit closer as well, so yeah. um, that was the plan. So we boosted over, um, and get over there and um, we we're actually planning on um, on camping on um, on Tremula Island, one of the islands that got nuked mm. um, and with the knowledge that background radiation is bugger all but yeah. there's advisory not to camp there. Yeah. Um, as soon as we get to the spot where we went to you know, want to um, camp out, the bloody fisheries patrol boat is parked right opposite and like, oh man. Yeah, right. Even though... It's advised against camping there. I'm sure it's not legal, but we're like, we can't do this right in front of fisheries. They're going to come and hit us up anyway. So we had to find somewhere else. Um, The normal spot, the wind was blowing the right way, so, or wrong way, sorry. So it was all choppy. Anyway, found a cracking spot um, in the end. Um, Spared some fish. Um, I got, the tides were still running when we got there on the first drift dive and like we drifted through this little passage where, you know, you obviously just get that natural exhilaration of the water mm. through a narrow passage. Yeah. And um, so I was very mindful when we were drifting through there about if I shoot a fish, I don't want to, um, I don't want to shoot um, into a rock and get my spear stuck. So yep. I saw the beautiful coral trout sitting on the sand, boom, nailed it, didn't know a huge coral fan. Um, underneath, buried in the sand. Yeah, the spear got stuck anyway. Long story short, almost lost my spear gun. Eventually got it back the next morning. So um, you weren't running a um, a reel or a float or anything. I was running a reel, but yeah. um, the was current it? was that strong. I ended up like kicking as hard as I could against the current, still going backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the line on the reel was running out, and yeah. then tried to get the boat to come save me. It was, it was an absolute drama, quite amusing in hindsight, but um. Yeah, so that was like. But you went and got up. the spear back. We did the next morning, man, and um, did you cut the line and take the gun. Yeah, and go, I, yeah. I cut the line, tied a tied a float to it. Yeah. Um, even finding the gun in the first place, the current was that strong. The gun was actually sitting half underwater, so yeah, right. It was only popping up occasionally to even get the opportunity to cut the line off. It was yeah, um, yeah it was hard work. And um, when you got a you know six seven hundred dollars worth of spear on the end of the line, it's like, man, I really really don't want to lose this. Yeah. Anyway, so that was drama number two. Uh, next day, went came picked it up. No dramas except the um, sharks had stolen the coral trout and made an absolute mess of my shooting line. It was just a big bird's nest, but whatever. <laughs> Ended up getting it all back. Um, and then on the way back, like we had a great day sparing and fishing. 
on the way back. We we're probably like an hour before dark, hour and a half before dark, only 20Ks from the island. And then um, we heard a bit of a chop and all of a sudden, Rrr! motor did a bit of a weird surge and then the alarm came on. I was like, shit. <laughs> And managed to get it going, but once I went over 3,000 oh, 3, revs, it just cut off again. Yeah, right. It's like, oh no, like, you know, relatively new motor. Um, mm. Just had the electrics done. Yeah. Um, You've looked you know, after like, it. Yeah. Looked after it, did all the right things to avoid this happening. Yeah. Um, and so we're um, mucking around with it, trying to get it going. By this stage, it's 4.30. It's mm. like, man, it's getting, getting pretty late. Um, and we we had this little Garmin and reset um, little GPS um, texting device, and yeah. um, so that was great. I managed to actually get a message out. It's um, yeah, you have to pay a subscription. It's like forty bucks a month or something. But yeah, right. You know, like pay for itself ten times over that day because I was actually able to message Emily and say, hey, you know, we're broken down. Yeah, um, we're okay, but we need some help, and we decided that. A little bit too much. Do we hit the E-perb? Do we not? Like, it's a big call. It is a big call, man. Yeah, it's, it's that's what they're for. But you don't want to be premature. Exactly, and you, yeah, man. yeah. It and, is um, a big call. It's a big call. So, but I was like, with the comfort of knowing I had text communication too, mm. um, was able to actually get the right message across. You know, we're not in dire straits. We don't need a helicopter or anything. Yeah, yeah. Although apparently at one stage they were still considering sending one. I said this. Text Emily and my wife was like, "Do not send a freaking helicopter." Yeah, I'm not leaving my boat out there. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Know. But um, but anyway, we ended up getting picked up by a pilot boat from Barrow Island because they were pretty close. Yeah. Um, they started towing us back to the island, even though the volunteers from Dampier were heading towards us. It's like they were towing us in the opposite way. Mm. It's like this is really weird, and um. All I could figure was that the guys from um, Barrow were just keen to get back and get to bed or whatever. Yeah, and, right. Uh, I sort of felt for the volunteers from Dampier. Could they, you go long further? Yeah, for starters, the volunteers, I, I hope the guys from Barrow are getting paid. But yeah, um, yeah they, they ended up having to go a bit further. And all of a sudden, the um, the Barrow guys did a U-turn and we start heading back towards Dampier. It's like, well, that's good. Um, they talking to each other? Or, or something. Yeah. Must have been talking to each other, not on our line. But yeah, um, yeah so then we... We got picked up by the Dampier guys about 9.30 at night, the Dampier um, Marine Rescue. Um, and then oh, yeah. we had probably 100 k's to tow, so we got in at 3.30. It was, yeah, pretty bad. Got a couple of hours sleep on the tow in, which is mm. good. And then um, got some mates and, um, and Crather. They lent us their car. We drove all the way down to Fortescue. Yeah. Picked up, <laughs> picked up. Because um, you were going to launch trailer. from Dampier, but you said oh, left. No, man, just the irony. Yeah. And, and what's funny too, the easterly that was meant to be blowing changed. It actually was a westerly, so it would have been perfect to come back to Dampier too. <laughs> it was cursed, wasn't it? Oh, and then so we. Um, I'm glad this wasn't the Monty's trip I got to go yeah, on. And, yeah, big time. And um, yeah, so then, um, and also it rained overnight. So, oh, yeah, that's another thing I forgot too. When we were packing up the, um, the tents and everything, it was. Pissing down. Oh man. yeah, of course. Um, yeah. so like everything was rained. Yeah, man, and bucketed down. It Three was... weeks ago, two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Far yeah. out. Um, they got a bit of rain at Carrara, but um, didn't yeah. make its way up here, unfortunately, to Helen. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but the Fortescue Road is this muddy road. Oh. So the car we borrowed got caked in mud. Oh <laughs> man, we had to clean that before we gave it back. The boat, trailer, um, my car got covered in mud. Just and then and you're already a whole night over schedule yeah, bro, at this so time. So I like had like two hours sleep at the stage, and it's yeah. like six a.m. or something. 
we get back to where the uh, marine rescue dampier is mm. um and um yeah then we just finished cleaning the boat and everything off put on the trailer fisheries rock up it's like these oh, oh man so then they went through everything with a fine tooth comb I was like oh, even you did you, they know the story yeah man and um and i just i was so zonked like i was just answering the questions half assed and i just think he didn't really trust us and oh uh, yeah yeah so next minute he's going through everything it was like oh dude like we were mm. well within our limit everything was yeah, yeah. board, but it was just something we could have done without. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sounds and, like uh, it. And then obviously, um, you know, we had our trip to Exe planned, and um, we basically lost the whole day because, um, you know, the, even when we got home, had to pull everything out, dry it all out, all the rest of it, and um, yeah. But man, first world problems. Like we freaking still scored. We had an awesome time. Um, you know, came back with the feed, and um, yeah, we got to go to the Montes again. So oh yeah, it was um, it was totally worth it. Like I'd do it all again. <clears throat> paranoia moment there because it took me five minutes to get the recording started at the beginning of this podcast I wanted to make sure we weren't I wasn't messing it up um, <clears throat> so uh, okay now <laughs> um, well that sounds like a hectic trip but as you said you get to go to the Montes again anyway and and um, you don't just do spear fishing and I know there's some other stuff you wanted to talk about when I had you on here yeah, man. so if I can segue into it, I can't segue into it. I'm just going to dive into it straight away. Um, you, you're into your hunting as well, land hunting too, yeah, a fair it. bit. Yeah. So you've got some. You mentioned you got some camel sausage. You're going to give me. I was a bit scared to come around when he told me he had some camel sausage to give me. I wasn't sure if it was a euphemism for something else, but apparently he's actually got some camel sausage. So there's a camel that you shot. Yeah, bro. Cool. So um, yeah. First of all, how. Uh, how long did you? How long have you had the camel for? Is this from last year, sometime? Yeah, man. Yeah, like, end of winter last year. So, yeah. Um, and that's from the Pilbara. Yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. one of the local stations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just you know, got permission for one of the station owners to go out, and he's got a fair few roaming around his place. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, he's more than happy for for guys to go out and clean clean a few out. Yeah, exactly. What's the meat like? Good. Beautiful, bro. Yeah. Like I don't think I've ever eaten camel. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and beef. It's yeah, right. You know, visually almost identical, mm-hmm. um, and taste-wise, you know, almost identical to it. M- much, much fat in them, like? dude. The hump, uh, yeah, is basically all. What fat. they do, they store the fat yeah, in there. Yeah, like um, so there is yeah, but um, beautiful meat, man. Like you've got a range too. You got you know the um the bag steak which is the equivalent of your scotch fillet and sirloin off a um off a beef animal mm-hmm. um you know obviously all the fat on top but underneath you've got beautiful tender meat and mm. then you've got the more lean cuts around the legs as well so mm. there's a there's a fair bit you can do with it and big animal dude huge <laughs> um even a small camel is like still massive. a big animal yeah. yeah man like i um the last one i got i took um both of the full back stakes and mm. both back legs um, and mate I don't even know how much this animal, animal weighed but mm. must have been at least 400 kilos I would have thought Far out. and wow. um, once you know I guess getting a bit graphic but um, once we've taken the back stake and leg off one side I had to flip it over to get the other you got to move off. it yeah. and, um, and it was actually great I had had my wife Emily out with us and yeah. um, and had the two boys as well, 
Yeah. Um, so that was something new for them. To experience, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, just the mission, even two of us trying to like flip this animal over to yeah. get the other half was insane. <laughs> um, Work, working for your meat. Yeah, mate, absolutely. But um, I think I would have got probably, I'd say, 70 or 80 kilos wow. once I boned everything out. So yeah. there was a lot of meat, a lot of meat a to lot get meat. through. Yeah. 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 So how how long have you been like been hunting for? Did you grow up hunting? Did you did your dad hunt or something like that? Or? Yeah, man. So probably when I was about, I think the first hunting experience I had was when I was about eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and the old man um, took us out of my aunt, auntie and uncle's farm um, up at the top end of New Zealand, Whangarei. Mm-hmm. And um, what was that what was that last word you said? Whangarei. Whangarei. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. up the, up north of Auckland. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they've got uh, got a farm up there, and they just got rabbits and possums, and you know, had a few pigs roaming about. But mm-hmm. that was my first experience going rabbit hunting with the old man, and um, and possum shooting as well. Mm. And as a kid, I was just like, I just loved it, man. Like just that being on the hunt and that excitement, and yeah. um, you know, just adventure. And, and of course, doing some with the old man too it was awesome. Yeah. So small game mostly then, but growing growing up. Yeah, yeah. mate. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think from that moment on, I just loved it. And I remember having some, you know, in New Zealand, you know, they've got possums introduced from Australia. They introduced them back in the day for the fur trade. Yeah, um, right. Big blowout because it turns out they did really, really well in New Zealand, too well. And um, yeah. and so now they just decimate all the native bush and stuff. So <sighs> you've got to keep on top of the numbers. Otherwise, the bush just gets smashed and... Um, it's either shoot them or they get poisoned with 1080 poison, yeah, which, which is not a good way to go. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get onto some population control and stuff like that um, in a bit. Um, for, so, what what other kind of game do they have in in New Zealand? When they got um, you got uh, what do you call them? Uh, the red the red deer. Red deer, but yeah. is, is there another word for them? I'm thinking red. There's else. um there's seven species of deer in New Zealand. All introduced. All introduced. Um, from various places, you've got um, red deer from both uh, Scotland and England, two mm-hmm. different, quite distinct types of antlers, even though they're the same species. Okay. Um, the ones from Scotland uh, were released more around the Otago area, down the bottom of the South Island. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the exact point. It might have been Lindis Pass, I think, from memory. And I think you're talking roughly 100 years ago, or maybe probably even more now. Mm-hmm. Um Wish I knew the exact dates. Um, Brought over by the dignitaries as as sport. Yeah, like often they were gifts. Like for example, um, tar, which are an animal from the Himalayas, they were introduced um, as a gift from President Roosevelt back in the day. Yeah, right. Apparently, a bit of a keen hunter. Yeah, real real Um, keen hunter. Yeah, so he donated I think half or a dozen of them or something. Yeah, they got released near Mount Cook. Um, but yeah, back to the original question, the deer species. So we've got red deer, mm. um, we've got wapiti or elk, um, we've got wapiti or elk, they're like the North American type deer. Yeah, um, right. Wapiti is the um, American Indian name, I think, yeah. or Inuit name. Uh, you've got fallow deer, which I'm not sure exactly where fallow originate from. Mm. Um, what have I got? Red, wapiti, fallow, seeker. Deer, which um, I think are Japanese. Mm. You've got Rusa deer, again, don't know where they come from. You've got Samba deer, 
and you've got white-tailed deer. Yeah. So those are your seven species of deer in New Zealand. Far All out. introduced just for game, game animal hunting purposes. And and with no predators. No natural predators. No natural predators. Yeah. Besides people. Yeah. yeah. So, so they just and probably a brilliant landscape, man. Oh, um, stunning, them. man. I yeah. mean, that's half the attraction. You know, you've got beautiful. Everyone's seen look. Well, most people seen Lord of the Rings and the yeah. imagery. It's just beautiful country. So mm. an excuse to get out into that wilderness and and with a purpose of hunting, just yeah. that extra edge. Numbers that need to be controlled as well. Yeah. So you know, like, and that was the original thing. I think it was originally a bit of a population growth thing for New Zealand because royalty is pretty much the only people in European countries that were allowed to hunt. Yeah. And the, the poor people couldn't. You know, yeah. every day man just wasn't allowed to go hunting because it was all on estates and very controlled. Yeah. So yeah. they said, oh, come to New Zealand, this hunting paradise, we've got all these deer and, yeah. um, you know, we've got, as I said, the tar from the Himalayas. They yeah. live up in the mountains of New Zealand, quite a similar country. You've got um, chamois from the um, Swiss Alps and like Austrian Alps. Um, they're a beautiful kind of antelope type, an- type animal. Yeah. Uh, you've got, you know, game birds, you've got, um, you know, obviously your, your rabbits, possums, pigs, goats, mm. um, wallabies. A lot of people don't realise we've got a heap of wallabies in New yeah, Zealand right. as well. And they're actually getting to be a massive pest these are days. Are they endemic there or they were brought introduced nah, as well? they were introduced as well. So, yeah, <clears throat> um, if wallabies ever go extinct on Aussie, we've got plenty in New Zealand. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but no, it's, um, it's definitely Hunter's Paradise, and, and it's a huge part of the New Zealand culture. Mm, it seems like it. Yeah. Pigs, Unlike did you say here. pigs? Yeah, pig hunting, yeah. Uh, um, one thing I've been really curious about, and you probably know the answer to this, so I hear a lot about public lands, public lands, public lands. In the United States, they've got public lands. Obviously a big problem in, in Australia. We don't have that same setup where it's public lands. We've got... Uh, national reserves, conservation areas, stations, and I mean, there's swaths of land where I guess there's nothing that, that's unclaimed. Part, you know, parts of, there's generally nothing uh, no, there. Like crown land. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but we don't have the same setup as public land where it's it's owned by the people. You can go out there, you can hunt, fish, camp, all those sorts of things without having you know to pay money to have um, you know. Uh, uh, licenses for it and that sort of thing does does new zealand have public the public land set up or um yeah new zealand does and yeah. huge areas of it too so that's um that's the beauty of it too i mean like a lot of people depend on going out there for their family to feed their family yeah you know, there's a lot of people who don't earn much money in new zealand especially in the remote parts and yeah. um having access to the conservation land and being going out there and and get a meat animal for your family is literally a matter of you know Putting food on the table for a lot of people. Um, so, and and do you have to get tags for these animals, seeing as they're introduced and plentiful, or is it sort of free free to hunt them? No, certain it's, species. It's actually just a free for all. Um, you know, like most guys are limited by what they can shoot and mm. what they can carry anyway. And the population, um, the the human population, is not massive in New Zealand, so it's not just not getting decimated like it would be somewhere in the states. Yeah, exactly, and just the nature of the terrain. Anyway, you know, you got thick bush, you've got very cunning animals. You can't just go out and shoot most mm. things. You know, you've got to, you've really got to work, work hard for, it. for them. Like mm. for example, my first deer, I started going for deer when I was sixteen years old. Yeah, um, took me till I was, I think twenty or twenty one years old. Like good four years of trying and putting in the hours and mm. really like had to work for that you um, had some good mentors yeah i did i mean later on it's obviously my old man like at an early age and he's the one that instilled the love of the yeah. um, hunting but 
it was more, you know, just, you know, working forestry. And the last thing the poor old man wanted to do was go out in the forestry again and go and shoot possums or rabbits with me in a weekend. But to his credit, he did, you yeah. know, because he knew how much I loved it. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't that into the big game stuff. And so it was, um, you know, just a matter of me going out there and because the old man was in the forestry game, I'd um, get access to some of the forestry blocks and get a permit for hunting that in the weekend. And mm. I saw animals, but I just sucked at hunting. So yeah. I, um, you know, it's often skilled, couldn't yeah. get closed or close or they'd see me before I saw them and, and you name it and probably just hunting the wrong times. And What sort of, what sort of gun would you have been typically using? Um... I had a, um, a 303 initially. That was um, our World War Two um, leftover rifle. Yeah, right. Um, just open sight 303, yeah. and um, you know they were just dime a dozen after the war. Obviously, they had mm. a heap of these things. Probably not down, the best. So. Probably not the best tool for the job either. Man, so they they should be good. Oh yeah, they are. Like I mean, you're not using military grade ammunition. Yeah. I mean, military grade ammunition is designed just to go right through, not not to mushroom out and cause maximum damage. damage yeah. So um, they just want to. I guess they want them to keep going through and get maximum casualties and take as many people out. But yeah. with um, with hunting ammunition, it's it's um, they've got a soft lead point. So when you when the bullet hits the animal, it expands and yeah. basically most, if not all, of the energy is absorbed um, by the animal. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so yeah, they're not a bad hunting rifle. Although they're very uncommon these days. I mean, mm. you know you. Open sights, especially most guys hunt with a scope. Yeah, and um, yeah. yeah. So started off with that. Um, had access to a two four three, which is a really good rifle for you know, especially younger hunters because it's not a huge size bullet. Yeah. Um, and the cartridge recoil is not bad. Yeah. Because um, you know, you're hunting with a gun that's too powerful, especially when you're young. Mm. You're gonna be flinching every time you go to shoot and yeah. probably miss. And yeah, yeah, happens to me quite a lot. Regardless. Open sight again for the two four three. Nah, two four three with scope. scope. So, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, you know, like so that was that was that. I actually did shoot a deer with the two four three once, mm. and um, that was probably just like, a very hard and very sad learning experience for me because I, you know, as I said, it took me years to finally get my first deer, but this one was about probably three years in or something. And mm. so there was a lot of hours put in to get up to this moment. Yeah. And I'm walking along this nice, quiet, like, gully, um, trees all around. The wind is blowing in my face, so I know any animals that are ahead of me can't smell me. Yeah. I'm walking so slowly and quietly, so the, you know, animals aren't going to detect me. And, and all of a sudden, this deer pokes its head up about 20 metres away. I was like, no way. And I started lining up on that. And then a stag with a six-point antlers... Um, put his head up right next to that it was like no way stag whoop and um, lined up on that boom shot it in the shoulder and it was I know in hindsight it was 100% a fatal shot mm. but my rookie mistake was um, they'd seen me right and um, and deer are bloody tough animals in this case um, this thing had been shot in the shoulder probably broken broken leg or, and you know like it would have been damaged absolutely Fairly, damaged, yeah, and, damaged. Um, and this animal you know starts moving through the bushes and I chase it after it which is the worst thing you can do mm. because that just sets the fight or flight and the adrenaline going in the Kicks animal in. and I'm um, just they're already a tough animal and it's just gave it legs and so I'm chasing this thing hoping for a second shot just to finish the deal yeah um 
going through and then it starts getting a bit windy and I'm hearing sticks break and it's always close but I started getting confused between the wind and the sticks breaking yeah like and mate I tracked this thing for about five or six hours like really? just trying to find it because oh, I was just so devastated like you know for starters it was my first there and then also like just knowing there's a wounded animal there sucks man yeah and um, so I went home and got our dog hoping that she'd be able to help me find them or find the animal and um, you know walked around like drove all the way home like you know a couple of hour round trip yeah um, bring the dog out there spent a few more hours looking and just ended up just you know had to give up and it was like uh, just heart sank and mm. you know you just feel guilty and you feel like crap and you know, knowing that you've missed out on this opportunity. And <clears throat> See, and that's one thing, that's something that a lot of people don't think about um, hunting when they hear about hunting. They don't, um, they don't realise that the hunters really care about the animal. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to kill them quickly and pain, painlessly and ethically. Um, and something like that, a missed shot, a, a, damn, a wounded animal can cause a lot of distress for people because the whole point about hunting is that these animals live their whole life in the wild and then all of a sudden one day they get shot and they're killed and they're dead and the animals get killed in the wild all the time as opposed to factory farm animals that grow up in a miserable, shitty uh, environment with shitty food and, and are, are, are marked for the slaughter from day one and then taken in animal after animal and shocked and then shot in the head in front of all the other animals and all that kind of shit, which is a far worse, in my opinion, a far worse demise for an animal to have. So... The hunting, yeah, we all eat meat. If you don't eat meat, then you really don't. You really shouldn't have a, 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 a poor opinion of hunters because they're the ones that are out there working for it. Quite generally, have a more of a connection with the animal and the meat and everything like that as well. And they're really, um, yeah, you guys are. Uh, the animals living the way they're supposed to until the day they die, and then bang, and then you and then you go on home and and like you've worked for that meat. They have a that's a natural way of of things to to go. Not everybody can hunt. A lot of us got to get our food from the supermarket like myself you know it's not something that everybody can do but if someone does have the capabilities to do it and they, they're willing to put the effort in the time in learn how to shoot properly and 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 do it ethically well, it's, it's the better way to kill an animal and eat an animal I, I don't see there's much of an argument for that really yeah i mean i i totally agree with those sentiments mate like there are i guess a lot of yeah people will get on their high horse and i think as well it's just a, a lack of understanding about that um you know, as you said, hunters always strive for a clean kill. Mm. And, and I'm of the opinion, like, the animals that we hunt, even when things don't go to plan, as you said, nature is nasty, man. Like, taking the factory farming and the commercial farming aside, um, even in the wild, animals get old. You know, you look at especially places like Africa, when an animal gets old, it gets torn to shreds by lions and mm. things like that, I think human's perception of pain is, is probably a lot different to how a lot of wild animals perceive pain, I think. They live with the pain generally fairly, yeah. fairly frequently. Yeah, and, and I also totally get, like, we are sentient beings. We should be able to avoid causing pain and injury to animals if we can. Mm. But regardless, even as you, you touched on the vegetarians or vegans, I mean, even if you're vegetarian or vegan, you're still killing animals. You're still actually having a huge impact because not only are you displacing animals from their habitat and costing animals' lives that way because when you're growing a monocrop mono culture of, say, soybeans or whatever um, or lettuce or anything, 
do you think the, the guys who grow that allow kangaroos to come in? What happens to the kangaroos that come and try and eat the, yeah. you know, the lettuces or whatever? They all get shot. Plus, it's uh, there's small ground nesting birds and little, um, you know, rodents and things like that that get displaced and chewed up in combines and all that kind 100%. of shit. Birds, all that kind of shit. There's nothing yeah. like you say. It's not nothing is um, um, 100% ethical or, or uh, what's, what's the term they like to use? Nothing is is um, completely anyway outside of the cycle of death. Even growing vegetables displaces, kills animals. You know what I mean? And and again, you're taking off huge swaths of land to to do that. That you know. So if you want to eat vegetarian or vegan for for personal reasons or ethical reasons because you're in the you, you don't agree with the factory farming um setup 100% I, I agree with that but I just think people need to be a little bit more open to everyone's different not everyone has the capabilities to do that other people have different ideas of where their ethics lie and some people are just trying to get by some people are just trying to get by do their job feed their family and, and and see out the day and start a new one as well so there's there's that too and I think that people again um you're out there trying to shoot animals the correct way and you brought up um, trophy hunting over in, in, in like somewhere like Africa. Now, I was really surprised. We spoke earlier before the podcast about a guy that Rogan had on his podcast several years ago. I can't remember the guy's name at all, but he'd shot a, a big bull elephant. I think that well, I'll get into the tag in a minute. So he shot a big bull elephant and had it all over his Instagram and whatnot and all the hate comes in. People want to kill him and fuck you, you're a piece of shit and all this sort of stuff and really aggressive kind of stuff towards this guy as well. Without knowing the backstory, I used to see trophy hunters and think, oh, that's a bit, you know, we're a douchebag as well, you know, like going over there and shooting a rhino, shooting a bull, shooting a lion, all this kind of shit. Without knowing anything about it, I didn't voice that opinion as a, an attack on people. That's just what I thought when I'd see those photos. Now, having this guy on there and hear him talk about it and, and a guy that is really uh, knowledgeable on the whole situation and his whole story that, he, that he, he outlined, the bull that he shot, was an older male that had been causing trouble around the other area because it's past its mating prime. It couldn't reproduce anymore. It's old, probably grumpy because its body's failing it. It had been causing damage to local villages and attacking other younger bulls who were in the in the in the right mating um, years in their prime. So it was a, it was a hassle. It was a problem. The bull had to go. So he shot it. Paid three hundred thousand dollars for the tag. They bid on the tag. He paid three hundred thousand dollars for the tag, and that money gets put back into the conservation parks and and system over in Africa. And the meat from the from the um, elephant was fed. Uh, I can't remember the number now. A ridiculous amount of local villages over in Africa. So okay, you can look at the guys as a person and go, yeah, okay, I think you're a douchebag because you got an elephant head on your wall. But ethically, he didn't do anything wrong. He went over there, shot a bull that needed to be put down, paid money for it, fed people. It's 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 part of the ecosystem, and that money goes back into conservation again. It's, and 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 he was he had to go. His time had been up, and that that is something that people don't know when you look at these kind of things from the outside. We see someone posing in front of a big, majestic, beautiful animal, and you just think the worst. And again, you can have your opinion about that person. I'm still not into posing with a beautiful fucking lion or whatever it is. You know, that's not something that I'm I, I'm uh, impressed by, I guess, but I understand a hundred percent the the conservation side of it, the necessity of it, and the the nuances of the discussion that that's that, that meat can be used, that money can be used, that's something that had to happen. So it's a it's a funny. Nothing's really ever black and white, is it? You know, yeah, people like to make things black and white, but they're not generally. That's not the way things work. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Like, um, it's interesting as well. I listened to a podcast a while back um, about a bloke who ran a game farm in Namibia, and he had 
hunting on his on his little section of farm. Mm. And when we're talking a farm, it's still a massive area, but fenced off. Yeah. And um, they were actually massively involved in conservation and repopulating um, elephants in areas of, I think it was the Congo. They, um, because when their herd got too large, then they would actually transport animals up to the Congo. And one of the big sources of funding to be able to do this and repopulate areas that have been, you know, had these elephants made extinct was the hunting income. Yeah. And it was just interesting to take on it. And one of the one of the real interesting parts he raised was that Kenya is a country that's banned all trophy hunting. And they're like the kind of the poster pinup boy for um and they don't have the anti animals. hunting movement. The animal numbers yeah. are so freaking yeah, low. Because the poachers come in. Yep. You need the, the the animals need sorry, cut you off there, mate. No, <laughs> the, the the animals need to have a value on their head. People don't yep. like to hear that, but that's mm-hmm. the natures of yeah. that's the nature of humans. It is that right. is the truth of it. Yep. If there's no if there's no value on the animal's head, then the people are gonna go in, they're gonna take that meat for whatever reason. And and that needs to be once the value's there, then there can be a framework infrastructure built around it to protect the animals and then the money can come. Mm-hmm for tags and other things like that. I think yep. in some places, I know in the States, I think all hunting gear has a certain tax on it. That money goes back into conservation of areas as well. Yep. Um, you know, you need to have value on the animals' lives when you're dealing with humans so that we can put the money into the areas to protect them and to make sure that... It, so people don't like to hear that synonymous is hunting and animal conservation. Without one, really, in a modern-day society, you don't have the other. Yep. 100%. And, and to say that they have, is, if it pays, it stays. Yep. And that is the unfortunate reality. And another very interesting point he raised was that the way Africa works is when you've got a drought at one end of the continent, the animals migrate up. Mm. And that's what they've traditionally done, yeah. you know, especially yeah. pre-human or early human population. Mm. They find now, the water holes, yeah. But now you've got human population expanding. Right in the middle where they used to migrate through, you might have a city or you might have farms. And what do you think happens when migrating animals come into contact with a farm mm-hmm. the farmers are like man this is my income those guys are struggling to get by um they're not going to put up with that and so these animals are unfortunately getting decimated and um it is a sad situation but you've got to you've got to adapt and i guess um sorry yeah, bro. um yeah just to i guess minimize um Minimise the, the negative impacts of human population. And, and deal you with the realities of yeah. the human animal, mate. We are what we are. Like, you might as well treat the symptom when it comes to people rather than trying to um, change the entire system. You know what I mean? People aren't going to change. We're always going to take what we need. There's always going to be people that overtake more than they need. We're going to do horrible things. You might as well set up systems in place that manage that and, and, and can hijack the system so you can conserve things like, you know, the animal populations. Yeah, absolutely, man. One of the things you touched on before as well, like sort of going back to any comments about the whole more in touch with the animal as well. I mean, I think that is one of the, the good things about hunting is that it really focuses your mind on the value of an animal's life. Mm. Because you know, it's almost counterintuitive, especially for people that aren't familiar with hunting, but you realise the significance of taking an animal's life. And I actually go back to my first, that first year I shot, it was in my second year of university. And um, when I shot this, it was a stag, it was an eight-point stag, you know, first one that I shot and recovered at least. Um, I had, you know, a 100-plus kilo animal, so much meat, and I just felt this deep sense of obligation to... I guess, honour that animal by cooking it right. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I love my cooking now, man. It's huge, 
huge part of my life and I love sharing good food and yeah. that one animal was actually what sparked all of that in me, man, because like I had all this meat and I thought I really don't want to screw this up and every single amount of meat that I could, I just did my best with it. And You had a responsibility to it. Exactly. And I think that you're so disconnected from meat from the supermarket. It's very easy to throw away, you know, those sausies or whatever that, you know, are a bit old. And, and you just like, and after a yeah. barbecue, how much food or whatever is get, through, you know, meat or veggies, whatever. Um, there's so much waste. And I think that because it's, it's so close to home and you've got a personal connection with that animal, you really you have that sense of obligation that you, you yeah. want to honour honor it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there's that. And even just it, it affects my choices at the supermarket as well. Like, for example, you know, you'll much prefer to buy a free range. I do personally mm. because I hunt. And I'm like, I know that an animal who's grown up in a caged environment, um, it's, a, it's a pretty crappy existence mm. um, compared to an animal that's been free range. And so I'll always try and buy a free range pork or free range chicken. Mm. Obviously, free-range eggs are standard, and they say it's hell up in the cage egg anyway. But, mm. um, you know, I find it funny when people are critical of hunters, yet they go and they have no qualms whatsoever about going and buying a caged chook from the supermarket. Yeah. You know, cook chook, Coles cook chook, eight bucks with a Coke. It's had a horrible life. Yeah, exactly. It, you know? I do find that a bit funny, and I think it's just because people just don't have the time to actually process it or even stop and think about it. Mm. And they just see a photo of a hunter and they have this image of hunters as these douchebags, you know. Oh, well, fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is actually, um, you know, interesting point too, man. It is actually driven into people from a young age. You know, you've got Bambi, the story of the big evil nasty hunter going and shooting yeah. the, the dead. It is driven into the young age, exactly. Um, and, and their um, anthropomorphism of um, animals. Of animals. And yeah, yeah, where they can all talk and the bear's going to be your friend. He's not going to rip you apart ass first and no. stay you while you're alive. He's yeah. going to hang out with you and get bees and honey with you. Mm. And, and what about... Um, the hunters are always the bad guys in all the movies, man. It's it's funny the way that they've that's been set up, and that's what's at the forefront of people's you know, um, minds. Um, yeah, that that whole culture needs to change around it because it's factory farming that's 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 the real problem. You know, it's, it's a problem. I understand that I'm part of it, and a lot of people have to be part of it at the moment. But you know, you've got to at least yeah. got to understand there's a better way it can be done. Yeah. Some people are out there doing that, putting the work in. We shouldn't be vilifying them for for that. Absolutely, man. I mean, like. I've been to abattoirs before, um, you know, come from you know, New Zealand being a very farming-oriented place anyway, mm. and so is Australia. I mean, we're food exporters, and, you know, your comments before about the cow, seeing the other cows being killed and that, like, it's not, in my experience at least, the ones I've seen, it's not that as gruesome as that. Mm. You know, they, they put them down a race so they, they can't see what's going on, and, yeah, yeah there's, it's still probably not ideal for them, and there's definitely far better ways to go but yeah. it's not the animals aren't traumatized from what i saw in yeah the right. you know like they and so personally i'm still comfortable with buying farm meat mm. but if i've got the option i'd obviously much prefer to go and get my own but it's mm. you know as you said man it's not practical for everyone so yeah um if you're buying meat from australia i wouldn't you know yeah, it's, it's pretty humane yeah um and yes there are definitely instances of douchebags like behaving inappropriately on farms and abattoirs. We've all seen the footage from the activists. Mm. Um, interestingly, there was a thing where activists were actually paying people to torment animals and make it worse. Yeah, right. That was um, documented. It was on ABC even reported on 
um, a couple it's of like, years ago. It's like government prover... Pro- 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 uh, pro- oh, I can't say that word. Government prover... No, do you know what I'm talk, trying to talk about? <laughs> Plants, where the government put pe- people into peaceful protests to mess it up so they can go in and, yeah, and, yeah. and run a market, sort of like, yeah. the, like the Greenies <laughs> version of that. We pay yeah, you to, to really be a dickhead it? so we yeah, can yeah. Cause, cause, cause a big stir yeah. about it. Yeah, I know what you're meaning, but I just, the word is lost on me right now. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, um, obviously, animals that, are, that we're hunting typically are not even destined for a for a farm anyway or, mm. or for, for an abattoir anyway yeah, yeah you know like in the case of camels um i don't even know if there is a commercial abattoir that accepts camels um i know i did a bit of research on this actually because i was like what an underutilized resource the camels yeah um because there was a camel cull planned a few years back where they were going to cull a million camels and you think a million camels, a million camels. times you know, whatever a camel weighs on average, yeah, let's say for argument's sake, 500 kilos, maybe 300 kilos of that's usable meat. So you're talking, what's that, 300 million kilos of good meat that's just going to waste. Yeah. Um, that is a lot of waste of meat, and, and that could be a sustainable resource. It's a problem, and it happens, again, I had to go back to the States, but that, oh, I, I hear these stories, so it's a, a lot of what I know, but they do it with things like uh, mountain lions. They'll professionally kill them, heaps of them, gun them down, but they won't sell tags for hunters to go and kill them mm. and use the meat because of the public outcry, yeah. what it looks like. But you're killing them anyway. People are yes. going and killing them. Might as well sell those tags, make some money for conservation, and then, you know, the meat mm. can actually go to can, – can be used. 100%, yeah. I mean, you know, as you said before, like the whole – for me, I've never had the inclination to go out and shoot a bear or a big game animal or, mm. you know, a giraffe or anything like that. I just, the mm. thought just doesn't do it for me at all, but – it needs to I happen. I there are people out there that want to do that, and if there's a net benefit, yeah. then and the animals aren't suffering for it mm. any more than they would be anyway, or in fact, possibly less than they would be, mm. then is it really that that bad a deal? You know, like, no. again, you can guys, you can you can be uh, um, put off by the the traits in someone that would make them want to go and do that, but you still got to understand that the whole situation is is not. A negative one as such. It's something yeah. that's necessary, and you're making, and they're getting benefit out of it financially yeah. for the conservation area. I mean, I get it. You know, they'll be like, "Why should we be encouraging these people who do it for?" You know, from what I can see, a lot of it's just about ego driven. For the gram. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. that's you know, for me, that's not what hunting's about. Mm. And most hunters, I think, as well. You know, most guys don't do it for the glory of trying big note themselves. Hey, um. You mentioned your tar, uh, the tar that has been introduced to New Zealand um, earlier, and, and you've sh- shot me a link a little while ago um, of a video you made. Um, I don't know when you made it, but of a tar hunt you did back in New Zealand. That was fucking really, really, really cool. I loved that man. So t- tell us a little bit, a little bit about that whole experience. Yeah. So that was that was my hunt. Okay. Sorry, we're back from a urination break, and just before Robbie gets into this tar hunt. Emily, his wife, has just brought us out some camel salami that Robbie made from the camel that he shot that we were talking about earlier and some, some chili jam from his fresh chilies. You should see this dude's veggie garden, mate. I'm super impressed. I've got veggie garden envy, but that's, that's none, nonetheless. We're eating fresh chili jam from the garden and, and camel salami that, from, the, from the camel that Robbie shot. So just to let you know, he'll be munching away. That's what's going on there. Tell us about the tar hunt, bro. All right, so tar hunt. So yeah, um, that was um, a pretty cool tar hunt. That was um, 
with a bloke named Zeph. What's a, what's a tar? Tar, yeah. So I mentioned it earlier, but they're a um, they're from the Himalayas, and they're kind of like the best way I can describe them is a goat on steroids. It's a good they're way to describe them. Goat on steroid that steroids that lives in the mountains, like the most inhospitable places. You're like, how the hell can an animal even get up there? Like, it's you know, picture Mount Cook is with our release, which is the highest mountain peak in New Zealand, where Sir Edmund Hillary trained for his um, ascent of Mount Everest back in the day. So it's a brutal mountain. And, you know, that's like the whole southern house of New Zealand where these... How big is it? Live. How um, big it is? What's that? The, the mountain. The mountain? I think it's about 3,000 metres or something. It's not super high, but it's still, like, pretty deadly. And like, treacherous, so... Yeah, pretty deadly, man. But quite a few guys die on that, and... Um, it's, yeah, not for the faint-hearted, so a great training ground for, you know, the Mountain. Yep. Um, yeah, so these things live in very inhospitable places, and they are, that's part of the challenge of hunting them. You know, it's big, open country, and just the most amazing landscapes. Um, you've got the East Coast, which is generally a little bit more forgiving than the West Coast mountains. Just the nature of the geology, east coast slopes tend to be a bit more gentle, a little bit drier, um, whereas west coast is just... Drier as in vegetation or actual rainfall? Drier as in uh, rainfall, and um, and yeah, I mean, it still rains a lot, it's New Zealand after all, but, yep. um, you know, it's, um, yeah, just a little bit more forgiving, you get these scree slopes that are nice, um, you know, rockfall slopes, where it's just like, it's actually one of the most fun things you can do is... Um, run down a scree slope and it's like a gravel slope mm. and so as you run down it's almost like you're you're running on snow or pillows or something it all moves it's like underneath like, your feet yeah it moves you underneath your feet you kind of got to ride so the rocks like slide on. down and I've seen so um, cool, man. I've seen Bear Grylls do it oh yeah yeah <laughs> we call it scree surfing but um it is a very neat feeling and um so you got that on the east coast whereas west coast is more just like vertical solid rock lots of green lots more rainfall and um for me personally, I love love both sides, but the West Coast just does it for me. Just that wild, rugged environment. Mm. Um, this particular hunt, we'd planned on hunting the West Coast, but New Zealand being New Zealand, um, very much dictated by the weather. Typically, you've got rain on one side of the mountains and it's dry on the other side. The lee side, yeah. And so in this case, um, you know, I only had about a five, six day window. Um, so we decided, well, it's raining on the West Coast, can't even get into it by helicopter. Typically, we fly on the West Coast by helicopter because yeah. otherwise it'll take you two or three days just to get to your hunting spot. Yeah, right. And when you're time-constrained like, like I was. and Most, just normal, not, most like, normal people are. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So if you're lucky enough, walking in is still very cool and there's something awesome about it. But, oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's just a... Yeah. 10-day turnaround trip. Exactly, man. If yeah. you're lucky. In yeah. modern day and age, not many people have that much time, especially when you've got a wife and kids to think about. So, yeah. yeah, we hunted on the East Coast, and the significance of that was really cool because um, about 10 or 12 years before that particular hunt was my first tar hunt. That was with the New Zealand Deer Stalkers Association. Um, the, the what? Deer Stalkers, NZDA. New Zealand Deer Stalkers Association. Deer Stalkers. Yep. So even though we're hunting tar, deer stalkers cover all facets of hunting okay um but yeah so they organized a hunting trip tar hunting that was my first introduction to tar hunting and Ziff was actually the hunting coordinator of that particular hunt mm. and that was um he's like a hunting in new zealand oh, legend sorry in, in new zealand hunting circles and 
I didn't hunt with him that particular trip. But the old fella from the video. Yeah, the old fella from the video. Um, he's like 80 years old now, uh, or maybe even 81 now. But he's still going strong, um, amazingly. Um, and, yeah. What we does he eat? He eats probably mostly game meat and things like that. And walks well, you know, funny enough, he doesn't, man. Really? Um, his wife doesn't eat it. And so he's just all about the trophies. But he just loves hunting. Um, loves it. And so, again, being a pest animal, mm. um, he's not too interested. Yes, he'll take some meat sometimes, give it away. But, um, yeah. Anyway, um, we went back to the exact same spot, Glen Tanner, where um, near Mount Cook, where I went on this original hunting tar hunting trip, and um, that was probably Zeph's last hunt where she um, we backpacked in because the wind was so strong. Yep. And so we drove as far as we could, and then it was chuck the packs on, and then walk up, and you know, it was sort of a five six hour walk up to the campsite, up yep. very steep mountainous terrain, and then once you're at campsite, we set up in the dark, probably. Got in there about 10 o'clock at night. Can I just cut in quickly because I've never done this, but it interests me massively. What's it like walking for six hours through a train like that? Like, I love driving around the country as well. Obviously, Australia's not sometimes not the most interesting country to drive around, but I do love it. Um, it's a bit different with kids, but I love it. But it can get obviously mind numbing and boring. What's it like hiking through that kind of train? Do you, are you does it get boring or or zoned out, or you're kind of in in a different place when you're doing that? Nah, you get hyper aware because because you're in hunting mode. That's the thing I love about hunting as opposed to you know hiking, which a lot of people love and it's beautiful scenery and stuff. Mm. But for me, that hunting gives you a sense of purpose, and so you're kind of on a mission, mentally preparing, mindset of like. You know, you're just hyper aware of your surroundings. You're always going through scenarios and shit in your head. Yeah, and, you know, just stopping periodically, looking up at slopes with the binoculars and, you know, there are animals up there. Yeah. And so that's that's a really cool thing. You, you, I guess you get really focused on, on the task at hand. Yeah. Um, and amazingly, you can get by with so little sleep without getting tired mm. um, when you're in that environment too. It's mm. amazing, actually. Um, so, yeah, we, we had that first walk up, six hours or so, set up. Um, first thing in the morning we get up and um, have a brekkie and the beauty about tar hunting big open country with no, not much vegetation like not much in the way of trees or anything because mm. you're above the bush line in New Zealand mm. you've kind of got the bush line up to about 1100 metres above sea level or 900 somewhere around there um, depending where you are and then above that is just open tussock land so mm. in this case we're up above the tussock and so you can just from the camp just sit there with your binos and just, just spend rocky. time behind yeah, spend time behind the binoculars and just try and find animals and before long we'd located a mob of tar that were, you know, in an accessible spot. So we decided to go after them and punched our way up and unfortunately by the time we got up there, um, it was all over. They they kind of their natural predators are uh, I think it's a mountain leopard or something back in the Himalayas. So their their movements are typically start high in the um, in the middle of the day, they'll come down and feed in the evening and then and at night, and then early in the morning they'll boost back up the mountain. Would um, that be a snow leopard? Yeah, it might be a snow leopard. Some sort of yeah mountain lion creature. Um, yeah, so you sort of take advantage of those habits. But this time, by the time we got up, as if you know. He's 80, and it's, it's just incredible, like, where he's going at that age. Um, yeah. But he's still not as fast as he used to be. Time to go up to the spot, and the animals are already, um, <laughs> already buggered off. So, 
um, we just chilled out for a few hours and, and waited until that evening. So I had a bit of kip on the mountain, mm -hmm. and then sure enough, those animals um, came fed back down later in the afternoon and um, gave us an opportunity, and um, we managed to um, knock over a couple of tar, which was awesome. Um, and yeah, I was primarily on a meat gathering exercise. Um, yeah, that one. Yeah, um, Dave's just pointing to a um, to a task, and I got on my wall. So um, that one was actually from a different now. That was from the west coast, but it's a big animal. Yeah, man, they are. Yeah, like that. The one on the wall was about 120 kilos or something. It was a big, big animal. Um, so yeah. Anyway, this trip, I did take the meat, and I took the took the horns, and I took um, and I took the skin as well. So there was very little of that. Animal. You got to pack all that out. Yeah, pack it out. Yeah. So you know, you probably. Just... So when did you, when did you learn how to um, quarter? Um, up meat or, or, or you know prepare the meat in the field like that is that something you learn on the on sort of on the job or from, yeah. from mentors and things like that um, a lot of it was from I was lucky enough to be exposed to that farming kind of culture growing up Young. in Gisborne East Coast North Island um, NZ so you know they sometimes see sheep being butchered and things like that so yeah had a bit of an idea from that, but then it's also um, Deerstalk was ran a couple of tutorials um, yep. on you know. So um, you're taking out full full legs at the hip joint, and yeah, then mate. there's big back straps and things like that. Is exactly. that the kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. obviously. And then to to get a, a um, to get a, a skin like that, is that something you'd have to take the whole animal out and do that? Later? No, nah, you should do it in the field. In the field. Yeah, there's no way you could like, whole animal. I mean, an animal like that around um, in that country. So you've got to, um, yeah, for the skin, it's... Um, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. To get that um, out and off and, and yeah, a bit of time in that. Yeah, like, I mean, I think it probably takes an hour or something to skin a tar, yeah. I guess. Um, and then... You clean once it up later. Yeah, you clean it up later. Um, you know, try and leave as little meat on the skin as possible mm. and... Um, yeah, and then in terms of the oh, how I learned that, that was just in the field with, with guys like Zef, um, you know, yep. seeing getting their help, and um, yeah, then in terms of the butchering an animal, same deal. Like you know, the more you do it, the better you get. And I did pun not intended, a bit of a butcher job on my first one, yeah. no doubt. But I bet that feels shit. I know what it feels like if you don't do a good job of a fish. Yeah, you know, you leave meat on the on, yep. the on the frame and shit like that. It's just like, oh fuck, man, all that work. Yeah, and I'm leaving meat behind. I'm making yeah. it look ugly. The good thing is with meat, is that like with an animal as opposed to fish, it's it's very easy to just anything you miss, you can just still pick up later. Yeah, right. it's just that your cuts aren't going to be that good. You know, like um, when you know what you're doing a little bit more, you can you know carve off the eye of round and yeah. and your sirloin and your you know and your your well, what we call the back stage is basically the sirloin and the scotch fillet. Mm. Um, but yeah, you, you can take out your meat cuts a lot more and make them more presentable, which is a big thing as well. You know, like when you when you want to give meat to people or share meat with people, mm. you don't want it looking like it's been just butchered up and, you know, by, you know, hacked up rather. Yeah, um, here, here's this animal. I should have some meat and it looks unappetizing yeah. and it's not the greatest advert for it, is it? Exactly. Sorry, man, I'm mulling into your yeah, cheese. sweet and camel sausage here. Yeah, no, no. Do it. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, um, I try and really look after, and that's a, a good point too. Man, is like looking after that meat too when you're on the hill. Um, you know, I take um, used to take pillowcases um, just so that when you when you cut that meat up, you can put it straight into a pillowcase. You're not getting hair and dirt and anything like that all over it. So when the pilbara shooting a camel, 
it, you, you got to have access to um, an esky or an ice or a fridge pretty quickly after the kill, or what, how long, Look, how long not, do you take? It's yeah. not super time critical. I, I tend to, all my hunting efforts up here, um, I'll reserve for the winter months, mm. um, just because it's you know, obviously a lot cooler. Um, when it's 40 degrees, you've got to deal with the flies too, and uh, yeah. the sweat, and mate. Like, Everything's just, hard. It's you know, hard it's going hard out to the mailbox in fucking <laughs> exactly. so, February up Just here. not enjoyable, man. It just yeah. doesn't, I mean, it doesn't interest me, so... Um, yeah, but I mean, like, it's amazing actually how long fresh meat will actually keep for. Yeah, okay. you know, the animal's obviously running at its normal body temperature. I mean, there's a lot of humans around, you know, touch under 40 degrees or whatever. So yep. they're warm to start with. Um, you know, the last camel that I got was, you know, the typical winter's day, 30 odd degree high or whatever. Um, brought a shot at around the middle of the day mm. um, and I just hung it up overnight you know it might have been a 10 degree night and then yeah. um, boned it out the next morning Yeah. and then the important thing is look after your meat to age it for a while in the, you in say the hung fridge, it up so. what'd you hang it up boy oh, I just um, but knocked up a bit of a pulley system and just um, you know hung it up off a off actually a boxing bag rack that I had so yeah right. yeah, yeah just um, and hang it up just helps the meat set so that the Dr. next day when you drain blood out is that what you're doing no, as well man, or not like the blood doesn't really drain out i mean you might get a few drops or something but it's yeah, nothing right. major it's like it's more just about the meat setting and um yeah, okay you know, so it's actually you can cut it as opposed to when it's fresh it's very you know very, still tense yeah just like you know you imagine if you if you cut yourself ever your meat's yeah. quite soft and pliable yeah. whereas um you know stiffens mm. up a bit of rigor mortis effect i guess kicks yeah in right so you can um actually cut, cut it up a lot yeah better, right so. Yeah, so anyway, that was that. Was that. Um, yeah, and, and I've, I've brought meat back from New Zealand as well. Do you have that tar hunting clip on YouTube? Um, I don't, man. I've got it on Vimeo, but um, I probably... Who the fuck is oh, Vimeo? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, I make these videos, but I don't really do them for, you know, yeah. promotion purposes, I suppose. Like, mm. I mean, I do... I like, I like, enjoy sharing with mates and then, yeah. you know, just to show them what I do, but it's not... Don't do it for glory, I, I mm. suppose. I don't haven't put it on YouTube. Maybe I should just to. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I think it's um, you know, I think it's good to shed hunting in a positive light, and I, and I try and do which that I think that videos. that video definitely would, yeah. you know, and and would maybe spark people's interest. It mm. Certainly did yeah. for me. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think as well that the big thing is for me is, is sharing that meat as well. You yeah. Know, like that's I get a lot of satisfaction from that and. Um, yeah, going back to the, I guess, sustainability side of it as well. Um, I just, I get a lot of satisfaction of knowing that I'm feeding me, my friends, my family with an animal that would have otherwise, you know, been destined just to mm. be shot and left there or even worse, poisoned. I mean, yeah. man, when these animals are poisoned, like in New Zealand, they use this 1080 poison, which they use also for foxes and stuff yeah. up here. Yeah, it's no good. It is the most gruesome death, yeah. mate. Like those animals suffer to no end, especially canines like your foxes. And it's not very, they it's, it's also... in the mouth. Like I know mates who have dogs. And exactly, it's non-discriminatory is what I was going to say. Yeah. It's not It's not like a target, it's a specific yeah. species. It's, it's you know, yeah. generally they'll be around this area and they scavenge, so we'll throw it here. You know, you, you, there's going to be some collateral damage with that Absolutely. kind of shit too. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a secondary um, poisoning effects happen as well. From the so, meat. Yeah, yeah. And then the animals that also receive a sub-lethal dose as well. So, so just fucks them up and then they live. Yeah, man. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there's, um, there's also like um, Kia in New Zealand, uh, the world's, apparently the world's only alpine mountain parrot. 
and um, they throw a lot of 1080 cores around the Department of Conservation New Zealand um, mm. with the intention of protecting the native species and, and all the rest of it. Um, sometimes I think they've probably missed the mark when, you know, you've got, they've got radio collared um, care, um, which they track and they've actually found quite a few, I think, I don't know, last 10 years, 12 or something or whatever have died. Those are the only ones being radio collared, which is only a mm. small percentage of the population. Mm. So you extrapolate the number of deaths. Yeah, it's like they say they're trying to protect them from rats and stoats and possums, but I'm like, man, it's killing them anyway. Yeah, you know, like you do wonder what's the greater good, and um, you know, the unfortunate thing for hunters, which is why there's a lot of opposition to it in New Zealand because so, the animals so, get so, killed too, and, and and then there's not as many to hunt. So yeah, so stoats are um in, introduced as well. Yeah, man. It's like, it's like a ferret, yeah? Yeah, you have stoats and ferrets in NZ, but the stoats are the more aggressive of the two. Bigger? And, um, yeah, I think stoats are bigger, man. And um, You know, all I know about stoats is from um, Foot Rot Flats. Oh, really? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Murray Ball, the cartoonist of Foot Rot Flats, actually, um, he's from Gisborne, where I grew up. Oh, really? There you go, fun fact. Yeah. I used to love Foot Rot Flats, man. That was in... <laughs> All of our, it was in our household growing up. It was actually mm. toilet reading. We used to have magazines in the toilet as a kid. <laughs> I just dropped a biscuit on your floor, man. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be eating pod, mid-podcast anyway, but it's too mm. tempting. It's sitting there looking at me. So how have we gone, man? We're an hour and 25 minutes in. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to get you back on here again. <laughs> Maybe. I think one thing, dude, I do, I don't know, do I... How long is that going to be? Another twelve months before we do it again? Nah, nah. Now you've got the taste for it. You, you won't be. <laughs> you won't be worried about it. Yeah, I think as well. Like um, one of the things I did want to cover off is that whole, um, you know, the whole the mental side of the hunting too, which mm -hmm. I didn't really get into in this at all, just through mm -hmm. the various segues. But um, you know, when you when you do go hunting, especially when you go into a place like the Southern Alps of New Zealand. Like I said, we'll often get helicoptered and dropped off, but whether you're walking or you're choppering, you know, you're up there and you are three days' walk from help. And all of a sudden, the the reality and the gravity of the situation hits you. Like when a chopper flies, and I feel like that feeling is more stark when there's a when you're dropped off by a helicopter because it happens so quickly. All of a sudden, you've gone from civilization, relative safety. The chopper is only a couple of minutes, man. Most in most cases, because it's just up rather than across, yeah. and um, and then you've gone into this wild environment, and you realise that man, everything is now on me, mm -hmm. and even if you got access to a chopper to potentially get you out, often the weather's like doesn't let them in for several days at a time, so yeah. you've got to be hundred percent self reliant, and that feeling is just a feeling that you don't get very often from many things in life, yeah. Um, and and you think oh yeah you get chop it up and you know just go and shoot an animal and have it as but it's not the case like it's like big missions you've just got a base camp you go and set up and yeah you might occasionally get lucky and get an animal close to your camp but often it's like a full epic adventure just to go out and get within shooting range of an animal from your base camp yeah and you might be up at you know sixteen hundred meters plus altitude where your base camp is and. And then you're climbing another four or five hundred meters vertical to get into a short range of a tar, and then it's like, then you shoot it, and then it falls down some, you know, steep, gnarly, rocky gully. You gotta get to it. Then you gotta get to it, and then it's like six o'clock at night, and yeah, summertime New Zealand, maybe it gets dark at nine o'clock, but yeah. 
you've got potentially a five six hour walk back to camp and um like it tests you you know physically mentally um you know and and you just you push your body to these places that you just didn't think you could go um that's the thing i love about it too i can imagine mate and and i don't have any experiences like that it makes me really really want to get involved in in hunting and, and and i love those what you're saying putting yourself in those situations I haven't had a whole lot of opportunities in life to, to be in something as, as full-on as that, but I love those opportunities. I thrive off that kind of shit, and you get it in small doses. We think it's something like diving, being down in the water. It's it's one of those things where um, when you're underwater, all that matters is what you're doing. You're not thinking about the bills on the fridge. You're not thinking about an argument you had with your wife or something that happened at work or on the, any of that kind of shit. You're thinking about what's in front of you right then. That's what's important, you know. Certain things you can get that from, really hard physical activity and things like that, which, which is why I love Muay Thai. You know, like there's certain things you can get into a, a zone that's normally only for a, for a couple of hours. So I can imagine extrapolating on that being completely away from the support system of civilization and all the rest of it and, and you're out there for a, for a two, three, four, whatever it is, day experience. And possibly with no outcome, and the, and the actual real world dangers of it all. Like I can imagine how how fucking thrilling that would be. That's when you know you're you're alive, eh? Yeah. And, and you come home, and and then all of a sudden you really appreciate that soft, comfy couch and the fucking hug from your missus and the fucking, <laughs> you do, all those yeah. kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the cool thing is too, it does. You know, you get all the mission parts of it, but then also you get sometimes it's just time for reflection as well. You know, you've yeah. been camping. You know, things are quiet. Sometimes, you know, you might be stuck in the clouds for a couple of days and actually just tent bound and um, mm. that can really do you in sometimes. But, yeah, right. Um, but at the same time, it gives you really cool opportunities, some really deep thought and mm. reflection and, and that's what I love about it too, you know, like you really think about the things that are important in your life at yeah. those times and, and it's also a really cool time to set goals and, and think yeah. about, you know, where you're heading and, and um, yeah, there's, there's so many facets to it that, I just love it. Oh, man. More and more, I just realised I need to get into a different state of life where I'm not in the and not in a rat race, which was a big reason we moved up to Headland in the first place to get out of the rat race, race away from the city. And I still and I still notice sometimes that just having the job that I've got in the circumstances I am at the moment, I'm still sort of very much in that structured structured lifestyle with very little free time in between what I do, man. And that's, yeah, I, I think conversations like this really get me buzzed to get out. We were talking about something before the podcast as well, but those kind of ideas, goals, that gets me really buzzed to, to make things like that happen, get out of the normal. Yeah. You know, life isn't just all about what most of us do every single day, in day in and day out, you know. Like there's so much more to it, man. Mm. Um, I'm buzzed. I'm I'm pumped for it, man. That that that. I think. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna cover? Oh, I don't know, man. I think that you know pretty much caps it off for now, bro. I think like, that I've got to get you back on. We yeah, keep man. talking about this shit, mate. Yeah. I knew that we'd have no trouble talking for it. It's been an hour and a half now. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Nah, don't worry about it. Hour and a half's alright. People people will be interested in that, man. I think that's a good that's a good little um, wrap up. I need to get some ideas off here. What I'm going to put on for the for the um this. The, the opening track so we can name this thing I've got a bunch of things on here we didn't even get to didn't even hit they were just in case I always got to have a backup plan in case there's dead spots in the conversation to hit other topics and, and keep moving forward but we didn't even need that man it's um good chat um yeah thanks for coming on
Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for having me, man. It's been really cool. Cool, man. Well, that was episode number 74 of the Average Man Podcast. My friend, Robbie Peck, and as I said, unnamed, will be named very soon. This one will be out in the next couple of days. Take it easy. Peace.